0: Welcome to Community Hope Podcast. We pray that the word of Christ would dwell in you richly as you listen and that you would be encouraged in Christ. Good morning. We're we're continuing our sermon series where we are working our way through the book of Matthew. We call this staying connected through scripture. And today we are moving on to Matthew chapter 23. And this is a fascinating chapter of scripture because if you read it, it blows up a lot of sort of worldly preconceptions that people have about Jesus. You know, if you talk to people sort of outside of the Christian faith uh, and you ask them about Jesus, they'll often say things like, Jesus was a nice guy, he preached that we should love everybody and be kind and be non-judgmental, and they sort of make him sound like he's you know, a hippie. And uh, if you read through the life of Christ, you know that that is just not a particularly accurate description. And Matthew 23 just blows that idea out of the water because this is of every chapter that Jesus, uh, is of his life that's ever recorded, it's probably the harshest that Jesus ever is to anybody. It's as close as Jesus gets to fire and brimstone. Like you hear people talk about fire and brimstone preachers, and they're, they're attacking people, and they're judging people, and they're preaching the law, and that's what Jesus does in this chapter, and it's worth not only seeing the people that he is, uh, you know, sort of calling out, but so, sort of starting to ask ourselves, is he calling us out at the same time? And so if you've got a Bible, like those of you, you know, who are at home, uh, maybe if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew 23. I would tell all of you to grab a Bible from the pew, but there are none. And so uh, I'll try to make certain all the passages are up here. We're going to be working our way through Matthew 23 today. Matthew records this. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others." And you know, right at the start of this passage, we see that Jesus is calling out the scribes and the Pharisees. And if you've spent enough time in church, you've read through the New Testament, those are characters that are probably a little bit familiar to you. But the Pharisees, they were the religious leaders in most of Israel at the time of Jesus. They tended to be the people who ran the synagogues that all existed outside of Jerusalem for the Jews who lived outside of that city so that they could worship. And these were, were guys who loved God. I mean, sometimes we get this idea that like, the Pharisees are the bad guys, but these are guys who loved the Bible. And I, when I say they loved the Bible, in order to become sort of a Pharisee, one of these rabbis, normally they had to memorize the entirety of the Old Testament. You know, like we're like, I don't know if I can like, memorize a couple verses or a chapter, and they often memorized the whole Old Testament, and oftentimes they did it by the age of 13. You know what I mean? These were impressive guys who knew the Old Testament and they would read it and go over it all the time to make certain they knew every single command. And they were really, really diligent about learning these commands and then teaching them to everybody else. And the scribe's job was to take the Pharisees' teachings about how to best keep these commands and then make them like readable and usable by everybody else. These were people who knew the Bible, loved it, And taught it and Jesus spends this chapter calling them out you know if you read through Matthew 23 he says all kinds of really harsh things towards them this is just a sampling in verse 13 he says woe to you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites he says woe to you blind guides you blind fools you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? And he says the phrase, woe to you, seven different times in this chapter. I mean, those are some pretty harsh words that Jesus is speaking to people who love God and love the Bible. And, you know, you know sometimes I think it's easy to, to take the Pharisees and be like, those are the bad guys, but we aren't like them. But I think sometimes we got to start to ask ourselves, are there ways in which we are like them? Because if we were to just broadly describe ourselves, my guess is we broadly describe ourselves as people who love God and people who love the Bible. You know what I mean? Which means that there might be some crossover in some of the things he calls them out for. And you know, uh, the big criticism that Jesus has for them is that they're hypocrites. And that worries me because I think there's something about each one of us that's a little bit hypocritical as well. I don't know if any of you saw this specific story in the news back in June, but you've probably seen stories like it over the last, you know, six or seven weeks. This was from Texas. Uh, Texas Starbucks barista attacked after asking customer to wear mask. You know, uh, masks are kind of controversial in parts of our country, and so uh, the headline really tells this story, but this was the first county in the state of Texas to issue a mask mandate. And a guy walks into a Starbucks, doesn't have a mask on. So the guy behind the coffee bar says, "Hey, can you put your mask on?" And the customer jumps over the counter and starts beating him up. And I I read this story in June, and I was like, "Whoa, those anti-mask people—they're pretty crazy, right?" I'm reading this story, and I'm like on my computer judging all of the anti-mask people. But but let me tell you, I'm not exactly innocent either. So earlier this week, as, as part of my job, I was on a, a Zoom call with all kinds of high school superintendents and athletic directors, and we were trying to figure out what to do about sports this year. You know, uh, a lot of people got questions about school. Are we going to be open for school? Let me tell you, that the parents at, high, at the high school level, at least the ones that I work with, are much more concerned about whether we're going to have sports. You know what I mean? It's like the big question. Are we going to have football this year? Are the kids going to be allowed to golf? And so I'm on this Zoom call with a number of other superintendents and we're trying to figure out, will we have sports this year? And one of the other superintendents is on the Zoom call. This is not him, but it is just exactly what he looked like. I didn't want to take a screenshot in this and then like other people find out that I was taking screenshots. So this superintendent was on the Zoom call, making this case that we can't have any sports this year, and that they take coronavirus at their school so seriously that he will not let anybody other than himself in the building. So he makes a big deal about how he is alone at the school right now doing the Zoom call. You can see his office, you know, in the video behind him, the door is shut. He's clearly by himself talking on a Zoom meeting with a mask on. Like, why are you wearing a mask by yourself in a building? And so, I mean, this Zoom call lasted for about four and a half hours, and for about four hours and 25 minutes, I was on a text thread with everybody who wasn't him, making fun of him for wearing a mask on a computer call, right? Like, it was crazy. Because you know what the, it's true about me is like, I'll make fun of you if you're anti-mask, but I'm also gonna make fun of you if you're like, take masks really seriously. Because there's a little bit of a a hypocrite that's deep inside of me, even about something as silly as that. I'm not saying masks are silly, but like this topic is at least a little bit silly. And uh, I think if we were honest about the scope of our entire lives, there's something that's evil and hypocritical that hides inside of each one of us. And it's always looking for a chance to come out. And I just think we've seen this over and over and over again in our lives where we've said one thing, but we've done the other, right? We take whichever side of the the coin is most advantageous to us at that moment, you know what I mean? And the real question I think we got to ask ourselves when we read Matthew 23 is, in what ways are you and in what ways am I sliding into Phariseeism? Because if these are people who love the Bible and they love God and they fell into it, are there ways where we love God and love the Bible and are starting to slide into the same sorts of mistakes that they made. So we're going to work our way through Matthew 23, and I think there are three big things that Jesus calls the Pharisees out for, that it's worth asking, do we have that same problem going on in our lives? And the first of these is that Pharisees want people to see their faith, but seeing God is secondary. Sort of a complicated idea, but people, the Pharisees care more about people seeing them than they do about seeing God. This is how Jesus says it in 5-7 through seven, and then 25-28. through 28. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." The Pharisees did all these laws, but not necessarily, number one, because they loved God, but because they wanted to be seen by other people as loving God. Their motives started to become a little bit mixed. I saw an example of this, you know, in real life. Uh, it's happened with a friend of mine. He's a great guy who loves the Lord. Even great people make mistakes. Um, this was back in the summer of 2016. And maybe you remember that Cleveland Cavs won the NBA championship that year. And... Uh, they, they won that championship. Uh, the big thing back then, you might remember, is when people talked about LeBron James, they said we're all witnesses to LeBron James's greatness. The big, uh, like, sort of team phrase for the Cavs was "One for All." W O N, you know, for all. Uh, they beat the the Golden State Warriors. You know, after being down three-one in the series, they came back to win it four-to-three. And about a week after the Cavs won that championship, my wife and I were at a wedding for some mutual friends of ours. And they had a nice big reception afterwards. And so we were there with a lot of our friends. And my friend Greg was asked to pray before we ate dinner. And so Greg gets up to pray at this dinner. He starts his prayer just like this. He goes, Heavenly Father, we are all witnesses to this beautiful thing that happened with Matt and Melinda today. We know that when they got married, it was one for all for the rest of their lives. We know that no matter how hard their marriage is, no matter how far behind in the series they are, they will make a comeback in you and their marriage will be strong. And for four minutes straight, he does this whole prayer where the first half is about the calves and then he tries to like sort of tie it into Matt and Melinda. And by the time the the prayer got over, people were clapping and cheering and screaming, yeah, Cleveland! It was wild. And uh, I pulled them aside later and I said, hey, man, like, what is about you and what's about God? I mean, we're praying, right? In theory, we're talking to God, but you made it into like a rally for Cleveland. And I I think this happens to us from time to time, like in our spiritual lives, where we got to start asking ourselves, what's about God and what is about me? Because it's really easy to take godly things and to start to turn them so that they become about the person who does them instead. You know, that's what Jesus is after the Pharisees about. He doesn't say don't pray. He says just don't pray in a way that brings attention to yourself. He doesn't say don't worship. He says worship in a way that that brings attention to God. There's this really famous saying, at least attributed to Saint Francis of Assisi, where he said always preach the gospel and if necessary use words. And there's a lot of truth in, in that statement. The idea being that when people see us When they watch our lives, they should see the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the spirit of the Pharisees is that when they see our lives, they're going to think about how good we are and how great we are. And I think that oftentimes we fall into this trap where we can take all kinds of good things and we can really do them in a way that makes them about us. I mean, it's easy for people who are preaching, right, to, to really care much more about their own image than they care about the, the truth. I mean, I'm up here preaching right now, and I really want you to like me. I want you to know that. You know what I mean? It's so easy to slide into that sort of, like, I want that attention. And I think worship leaders fall into this, right? I think that anybody who's in leadership can fall into this, but it's not just leaders, you know, like you can go to the homeless shelter and you can be serving food and you can find ways to make it about you. And this is a real problem, and I think we got to ask ourselves, are there ways in which you can use religious actions, things that we're called to do that are all about God, but you really use them to promote yourself? Because God says that our lives are supposed to be about bringing God glory, and so often we want that glory ourselves. We're supposed to be here to build the kingdom of God, but too often all we care about is building our own kingdom. And that's the first way that I think we can start to move into the Pharisaical world that Jesus is calling us out from. The second thing that Jesus calls the Pharisees out for is that they selectively edit Scripture to fit their preferred bubble. You know, this is what he says in verses 23 and 24. "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites!' for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. He says, listen, Pharisees, you guys give, you tithe, right? And that's a a biblical command that you give your money and you be generous. He goes, you do that but he says you don't really do justice and mercy and faithfulness. He goes, you say these things and you do them, but then you ignore these other ones. Because the Pharisees tended to be the upper middle class and the wealthy people. And you know what's really easy to do if you have a lot of money? It's pretty easy to give 10%. You know what I mean? Because you're going to have a lot left over. But it's a whole lot harder for those Pharisees to care about justice and and mercy and faithfulness you can give without caring about justice you can put money in the offering plate without being particularly merciful and he says listen guys you can't have it that way jesus doesn't say do justice mercy and faithfulness and don't give i mean if you see underlined he says these you ought to have done without neglecting the others jesus says you don't get to pick which commands you do because they're easy you don't get to ignore the commands that are hard. He says, I expect you to do it all. And if you heard Jim preach last week, he called this cafeteria Christianity. This idea that some people want to take, I'll do these three things, but you know, hold that. I don't really like that idea, Jesus, so I'm not taking any of that. Don't, don't put that on my plate. God doesn't give us that option. He expects us to do all of it. And what Jesus is getting at here is the idea that All of us as believers, and I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all have blind spots. And by blind spots, I mean there are things that we are called to do by God that for one reason or another we're just not doing. It might be that we've got sin in our life that we're just not willing to admit that we have. There might be a cause or an idea that God has called us to that for some reason we have not done, but we're all blind to our own sin and our own shortcomings from time to time. And, uh, you know, it's sometimes easy to pick on dead people because they can't fight back. So I want to give you an example of what this looks like. Uh, One of the most famous American theologians is a guy named Jonathan Edwards. You can see him up here on the screen. Jonathan Edwards was a pastor, a preacher, uh, really famous for revivals that he did all around uh, the country a couple hundred years ago. It's estimated that more people came to faith because of his preaching than anybody else in American history. Um, he can his uh, writings continue to influence people today if you read them you look at his old sermons This was a guy who knew God and loved God and frankly a lot of what he wrote is incredibly inspiring He's a great guy And if you dig into his life, you'll find out that for the entirety of his life his adult life at least Guy owned slaves You're know, like it's possible to love Jesus and really be blind to a sin you know what I mean that exists in your life And it's easy to make excuses like, well, that was the time or that was the place. You know what I mean? But the reality is is that even those of us who love God dearly can be really blind to a sin that exists in our life. And I'm not suggesting that we cancel Jonathan Edwards. Please don't get me wrong. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying we got to be honest that even the people that we think have it together don't always have it together. And if that's true about them, then that's also true about me and it's probably true about everybody in this room and i think we got to ask ourselves are there things which god is concerned about that you're ignoring you know what i mean that would mean that there's a a blind spot in your life the answer is that there probably is and i can't possibly claim to know the blind spots of everybody in this room i mean to be honest i don't really know my own if i did they wouldn't be blind spots (laughs) But I I think we got to ask ourselves, are there things which we have ignored? And I want to give you a couple of examples that I I have seen, at least, uh, to sort of get you thinking about your own. Uh, Back about six or seven weeks ago, I was with my friend Mandel. He goes by Rev. Everybody calls him Rev. And Rev and I were walking in a a march at a, a demonstration that was organized by these two guys right here. Just incredible young men. On the left is Avery, on the right is Tyler. Um, I always call them kids, but they're not kids anymore because they're like in their mid 20s. Um, but they are graduates of Lutheran East, where I was the principal for a long time. I've known their families and them for 10 or 15 years now. And these two guys organized and led and ran and then spoke at the first completely peaceful demonstration in Cleveland, um, you know, following the riots that happened downtown, and they preached the gospel, and it was inspiring. It was just a cool, cool day uh, that I had a couple of thousand people there, and Rev and I, my friend Rev, we were walking uh, back from this talking about these two guys and talking about our churches and the ideas about justice and equality, and Rev looked at me, and he said, hey, how much further along would the cause of racial justice in our country be if the white evangelical church cared as much about that as they cared about abortion. And I go, oh, yeah, because we're not called to one or the other, right? We're called by God to both. And the fact that we can even say the white church and the black church probably tells you how separated we really are on some of these issues. I thought, man, that's a blind spot that definitely exists. And, you know, one that I see just in my circles that I run with all the time is, just how blind we are to the tribalism that exists and how much it's taken root, I think, inside of, even in our, our Christian churches inside of our country. I mean, whether you consider yourself to be real conservative, you consider yourself to be real liberal, uh, one of the things I think that we often forget is that we've got brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ that are in the opposite tribe. And that, that's something that I think we can't say strongly enough. You have brothers and sisters who are on the opposite side of these issues of you, and you have more in common with the liberal on the other side of the aisle or the conservative on the other side of the aisle than you do those people in your political tribes because we're united in Christ. And we often act like the other side is the enemy when the other side might actually be our family in Christ. And that should be a deeper bond. You know, uh, you can read the Bible front to back, and it's not going to tell you how big our government should be It's not going to tell you how much we should charge in taxes. It's not going to tell you whether we should have socialized medicine or not. You know, like those are opinions. There are certainly biblical ideas that we can apply to our politics. I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't. But not all of these answers are cut and dry. And too often I think we get into our sides and we forget that there are things that unite us that are much stronger than political affiliation. And I think that that's also true when it comes to our patriotism. The Bible says that we should pray for our country, we should pray for our leaders, we should want what's best for our country. I'm not saying we should not. We should be, on some level, patriots. And you have more in common with a brother and sister in Christ who lives in Uganda than you do the American who lives next door who doesn't know Jesus, which really leads me to believe that the idea that America should come first is not exactly a biblical idea. The Church of Christ should come first. The Bible says we're refugees wherever it is we live because our true home is in Jesus. And we got to remember that when we're making our decisions. And sometimes I think our love of our country, which is not a bad thing, is often a good thing, blinds us to what God really wants to do. I think our love of our tribe, our political party, our affiliation can do the exact same thing. You know, it's easy to talk about other blind spots, so I'll at least try to tell you a little bit about one of mine, because otherwise I'd be standing up here doing what I'm trying to not do. You know, uh, it's easy um, to, to talk about everybody else, but I want to talk about me for just a second and the way that I speak, because I'm not always great. If you spend enough time with me, you'll know that I say stuff that I shouldn't say just all the time. It's really been one of my downfalls throughout my life. And uh, I was the principal at Lutheran East for about a decade, and I remember this time about five years ago, I suspended the best student in the school. Her name was Jerry, she was going to be valedictorian, it was her senior year. She was the captain of the volleyball team, captain of the basketball team, best student in the school. Uh, She ended up graduating going on to Xavier, which is a great school. And uh, in the fall of her senior year, I suspended her for using profanity in the hallway, She'd never been in trouble in her life. She'd never gotten in detention, but she said some stuff she shouldn't say. We can't allow that. So I suspended her from school. And the day that she came back from, uh, from being suspended, they were supposed to have a volleyball game. And it was six o'clock at night, and the volleyball team was still at school because the bus company that we rent from had forgot to send them a bus. And we ended up having to cancel the game. And the exact same thing had happened the week before and I lost it. I I thought I was alone in the hallway. I'm already starting to make excuses for myself, you can hear. I thought I was alone in the hallway, and I'm on my cell phone just screaming at the busing company, right? And I said a whole bunch of words that I shouldn't say, and then I hang up my phone, and I turn around, and Jerry is standing right there. And I instantly, I start going, well, you know, I'm trying to defend you girls. I'm trying, you know what I mean? And I start making excuses excuses for all of my sin and if you really want to know what sins you're blind to start asking yourself what are the sins that you make excuses for because if you're making excuses for them it means you're not really willing to admit that you've got a problem and you know what Uh, i think we got to ask ourselves what are my blind spots because god doesn't call us to partial obedience he calls us to complete obedience and pharisees are people who have blind spots and aren't even trying to look for them The last thing that Jesus calls the Pharisees out for is that Pharisees carry on the sins of the past, and they somehow fail to see that they're doing it. He says this in 29 through 33, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, "'If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets.' Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? He goes, listen, you guys talk all this about how if we lived in the past, we wouldn't have made those same mistakes. We wouldn't have killed the prophets. And five days after Jesus says this, they kill him. Right. You know what I mean? Like You, guys are, you can talk all, the, all you want about the past, but you guys are going to make the same mistakes today. And what a fascinating thing to think about at this moment in our nation's history where much of our media narrative is about tearing down the past right I, I mean i'm not a big statue guy i don't really care what happens to statues to be honest with you you can take down treasonous uh, confederate statues all you want right i don't care but like how do the people who are into this tearing down the past recognize the ways in which they're just carrying on the exact same stuff i mean i think it's a, a fair question to ask you know, uh, I'm not a, a big Christopher Columbus guy. I mean, I don't know if any of you read or signed the petition to, to rename our state's capital, Flavortown, after Guy Fieri. I support this 100%, but I, the real question I think we've got to ask ourselves is on what level are we carrying on the sin that we believe that we're tearing down? Are we, in some way, shape, or form, just as problematic As the people 200 years ago and will people 200 years from now be looking at us and you know pointing out all of our flaws because one of the things I think that we see is that sin often carries on from generation to generation there's this fantastic example of this in Genesis of just sin being passed along from generations if you read Genesis chapter 12 there is a crazy story about Abraham where Abraham moves to Egypt he is married to Sarah and Sarah is so beautiful that he's like hey they're going to kill me and take you for my for yourself for themselves and so just tell everybody that you're my sister and so he tries to pass his wife off as his sister and she ends up living with another man like it's crazy and then he does it again 8 chapters later and then if you keep on reading through Genesis you get to his son Isaac and Isaac Is married to this beautiful woman Rebecca and when he gets scared for his life he passes her off as his sister and the fair question you got to ask is where did he learn to do that you know he learned it at home you know what I mean he learned that sin at home and then if you read Isaac's life you find out he had a son Jacob whose only characteristic is that he lies to everybody and then if you read about Jacob's sons, they're even more liars, right? Like there's this, like it, this sin, it just gets passed down and it gets passed down. And I start to ask myself, do we get affected in that same way? Are we carrying out sins that sort of got passed down to us, either from our family, from our culture? You know what I mean? Those sorts of things happen. On a really big scale, one of the things that sociologists will tell you is that kids whose parents are divorced are much more likely to get divorced because sin has an effect on us. And uh, children who are abused are much more likely to grow up to be abusers because sin sort of carries down. And maybe uh, it might seem less consequential. I don't think that it is. I wonder how much we have been influenced by the culture that just tells us that we need more stuff. I mean, we live in the most consumeristic, materialistic society that has ever existed, Right, where we got to have the latest and the greatest and more, and we got to have a 40th pair of shoes, and we need the the newest car. And I wonder how much of that, not only did I get from my parents, but how much of it am I passing along to my kids? You know what I mean? And I I think there's a fair question we got to ask where we, we say, What sins did I learn at home? What sins did I learn from the culture? And then those of us who are parents or grandparents, what sins am I passing along? Because one of the things we know is that we can pass it along. And we're probably, you know, at some level, victims of that as well. And we got to ask ourselves, what sins am I carrying on from my fathers? And then what sins am I passing along to my kids? Because that's one of the things that Jesus calls the Pharisees out for, that they didn't learn from the past. At some point, it has to stop. Somebody has to come to Jesus and say, it stops with me. And that Jesus is calling us to be those people today. And, you know, when I... I hear Jesus say these things about sort of the effects of generational sin, when Jesus talks about wanting people to notice us instead of noting, noticing God, and when Jesus says that we've got real blind spots. I read this chapter, and I'm really convicted about my own issues. And the question I've got, and, and I think that it's fair for a number of us, is, is there any hope for Pharisees like me? You know, because it's so easy to talk about them, but I I think we've got a lot of the same issues in our own lives. And is there any hope? And it's fascinating that Jesus spends the first 36 verses of this chapter just calling these people out for their sin, but he leaves them on a hopeful note. And that hopeful note is is something that I think each of us need to hear today. He says, "Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? You know, he says, Listen, for years, all I've wanted you guys to do is come to me. Even right now, he says, You're not willing. But look in the middle there, he says, All I want is for you to come to me, and like a hen gathered, gathers her chicks, I want you to come under me. And you get that, that image, right? Of these chicks that are running around, and they're crazy and they're wild. But then the hen gathers them, puts her wings around them, tells her that she loves them and keeps them safe. That's what Jesus wants to do to the Pharisees, right? It's what he wants to do to us. And so the good news is that no matter how much we've started to slide into that world, Jesus is still calling us back. Jesus still says, I love you. Jesus still says, come to me and I'm going to cover you. Jesus never stops loving his people. And he never stops calling the Pharisees like me home. And that's the real solution to the Pharisaical spirit that sometimes gets into our hearts. Where the moment that we start to come under Jesus' wings, where we start to let him love us and uh, keep us secure, that's when we can start to break these cycles. That's where we can start to see our blind spots and have him change them. That's where we can be the type of people who give him glory because we don't need it any longer because we're resting secure under the wings of our Savior who never stops calling us home. And Let's be those types of people today and always. Please pray with me. God, I got to admit that far too often um, I am living like a Pharisee, and it just sort of seeps in, my guess, is to many of our lives. And God, I just want to start by admitting it, but then I want to thank you, God, for calling us home and loving us anyway. And God, I want to ask that we would be the, the types of people who rest under your wings and let you start to change our hearts and to make us disciples instead of Pharisees. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Community of Hope, go to www.cohchurch.com. God bless you today.